You're listening to the Harris Beach Podcast, a show that explores evolving issues in the law and how they shape organizations, the way business is conducted, and how we live and work. The information provided in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials are for general informational purposes only. Thanks for listening. Here's today's host. Hello, everyone. I'm your host for today's episode, Brian Carnavalli. Given the enormous focus on the COVID-19 pandemic, it's worth questioning whether data privacy laws will take a back seat in terms of state and federal government priorities. But in fact, the opposite may be true, and organizations need to be prepared to meet regulatory compliance, even while dealing with the ramifications of the pandemic. Today, I'm joined by Alan Winchester, leader of the Harris Beach Cybersecurity Protection and Response Practice Group, Michael Montagliano, Chief Technology Officer of IV4, a full-service information technology provider, and Mike Campisi, President and General Manager of Citra.io, a Harris Beach subsidiary that offers a compliance-as-a-service solution called Symmetric. Alan, Michael, Mike, thanks for joining us today. I want to frame things up for the audience. What impact is COVID-19 having on data privacy issues such as HIPAA compliance, the New York State Shield Act, CCPA, and others? Alan, can you kind of just uh, frame things up for our audience? Sure, that's a, a super big question, um, and of course, it's a big answer as well, but to sort of look at it in two buckets, well, three buckets, actually, one from data security, the other from data privacy, and then the last is sort of cyber crime that probably Mike can address better than I can, but um, the security changes are, are being driven by a number of factors. I'm going to say, you know, sort of working from home obviously changed the system security plans that many organizations had. The social distancing and the ways that organizations need to now manage their workforce has changed. And then there there are sort of public health concerns that are driving privacy and security as well. So it's possible, I think, that some of these changes might even become semi-permanent as businesses learn to sort of make this remote office work. They could see less rent. So a lot of these privacy issues, I think, are going to go longer than than the pandemic. And we're just going to have to deal with them. So if, if we look at the security sort of changes, we're seeing both a tightening and a loosening, or at least a loosening of the, the enforcement of some of the regulations. And in terms of privacy, we're seeing the same. So to put it into, into example, the New York State Department of Financial Services has allowed for many changes in banking and the way that you know, branches are managed but at the same time has required actual implementation of you know, two-factor authentication, VPNs, and so forth for homes. So while at one level they're loosening it, at another level they're tightening it. DFS also required companies that are regulated by it to give updated system security plans that they'll file with the DFS back 30 days after March. So it's, it's passed, that deadline's passed, but if you haven't done it, now would be a great time to start doing it. We're seeing like in, in HIPAA, they are allowing certain types of telemedicine that were, were otherwise not allowed before. And obviously, some records need to come home to doctors and practitioners' homes, uh, which otherwise would have been prohibited. So in HIPAA, they're not you know, going to penalties, although it's still prohibited, it's not going to be penalized. So that's sort of an interesting approach. And then in the, the SHIELD and the California Privacy Act, uh, which are two you mentioned, I don't think anything has changed. Both of those laws are going forward, and 
the attorney general in California indicated that enforcement would start in July. And of course, under the CCPA, there's a look back to January 1. So they're going full steam ahead. Mike Mantagliano, could you weigh in on that? Alan mentioned cybercrime. And since uh, March, what we're seeing is about a 4x increase in the volume of attacks. Uh, we spoke to the FBI a couple weeks ago during an incident response, and they're receiving over 4,000 calls per day versus the normal call volume, which is about 1,000 calls a day. So a uh, greater, much greater increase in the number of phishing scams, uh, compromised email accounts, ransomware attacks are on the rise. Typically, it's about one every 14 seconds, and uh, that's gone down to one every 11 seconds. And while that doesn't sound significant, you're talking two or 3,000 more attacks uh, an hour. So volume is significantly up. Uh, hackers and cyber criminals are taking advantage of remote workforce and, and uh, weakened security controls in place to, uh, to breach organizations. Mike and PC, anything to add? From the perspective that we look at it from a compliance as a service lens, the organizations that have typically not necessarily spent focus on either implementation or enforcement or even designing programs, uh, that whole perspective has changed dramatically now that they have a different methodology for delivering or performing their services or their work as an organization. So the idea that a program, a security program, and a privacy program needs to be specifically put into place becomes a much bigger priority. So that the idea of having something and being able to implement it becomes uh, more pressing that, uh, than has historically may have been put into, uh, into their organizational priority lists. Given the resources and attention that are rightfully being paid to the COVID-19 pandemic, what about the expected enforcement of regulations such as the California Consumer Privacy Act and the New York State Shield Act? Alan, you alluded to that sort of business as usual a second ago. Just put a finer point on us. Are these being enforced despite everything else going on in the world? Well, we haven't seen anything yet under S.H.I.E.L.D. or California because the enforcement window, you know, for, for S.H.I.E.L.D. just started, right? And I haven't seen anything happen yet. California, the, the penalty parts are going to start in July. So we haven't seen anything there. But we have seen from the California Attorney General that they're intending to go forward with enforcement despite fairly aggressive lobbying from industry that as a result of the, the COVID work that they're doing, they don't have the resources to put forward. But, you know, a number of advocates on the other side have argued that that's kind of cynical on their part. The law went into effect in January prior to COVID, and by now they should have had it, and that they're kind of using the COVID pandemic as a as a basis to avoid doing what, you know, the state and its people want to have happen. So, you know, the AG has taken the position that they're going to go forward with enforcement. Uh, in New York, SHIELD is the law. You know, there are different laws, but I think that for New York, it's going to go forward and we're going to have to work on changing our, our plan. So I, I think, you know, if you're in an area that's affected by, you know, still in lockdown, like New York City or downstate in that area, you know, maybe your system security could be a little different than it would be, say, in an environment upstate, where now you could go into the office more. But even so, with, with VPNs and two-factor and all the other stuff in place, you ought to 
be able to get a pretty good, especially if you got someone like, like Michael helping you, you ought to be able to get a pretty good system security plan that makes you barely comparable to what you were at work. So it's, it's going to be a challenge if, you know, you have a, a terrible uh, architecture for your, your design to, to defend that under the shield law. And in California, which is really more of a privacy law, you know, why, why wouldn't you notify your data subjects of the rights they have under that law? Let me add to that a little bit, Alan. Um, what we're observing in the field for the past eight weeks, we've responded to three incidents. We have an incident response team. Three organizations that we work with were breached. And what's strange is I think there's a delayed reaction from the authorities. One of the organizations was a healthcare organization. They suffered a ransomware attack. Uh, every server, every workstation was encrypted, including their backups. They were forced to pay 20 Bitcoins, which is about $140,000 to get the keys back to decrypt their systems. When we first meet with an organization that's been breached, the first call we tell them to make is call your lawyer, get legal assistance to understand what your obligations are, what your exposure is, and make sure that you're notifying the proper authorities. So day one, they reached out to, to the FBI, to the state police in New York. And what we generally would see is a quick response from those agencies to help them uh, mitigate the risk. And because it was healthcare and EPHI involved, typically the New York State Department of Health and New York State Cyber Command uh, would reach out to them as well. We heard from no one. It's been six weeks and we have not heard back from one agency. And I think because of the volume of attacks um, that elevated the risk landscape that's out there, I think there's going to be a delayed reaction to enforcement. I think eventually it'll come back around, obviously, with EPHI involved. The Department of Health generally will come right in and just try to understand the impact of the breach and the impact on patient records and help them with notification. But we're seeing some delays out in the field right now. Yeah, and of course, with the states and cities and so forth short on cash, penalties are, are a good way to raise revenue as well. So, you know, I'd be careful. I want to go back, Alan, to one of the points you had made uh, a couple of minutes ago about lobbying efforts in California. So trade organizations are lobbying to delay CCPA enforcement, saying they don't have the operational capacity or the time to, to get into compliance. Have you heard of similar efforts underway in New York State related to the SHIELD Act? I know you said there are different laws focusing on different areas, but do you expect that to happen in New York State? Is that already happening? Are lobbying efforts underway? I have not seen any lobbying activities. You know, the, the California law is really about notifying customers of their rights and what an organization is doing with the data. And it's more of a, a privacy-related law, whereas the New York Shield law is really a security-focused law that requires an organization to have a formal policy and practice in place for protecting the sensitive information that's protected under the law. So for the most part, organizations, I think, have been protecting it. Now, maybe they haven't been doing it with the rigor that the law describes, but it's a different argument saying, you know, I don't want to protect the information during a pandemic versus I'm having trouble operationalizing some disclosure requirements I have. I, I haven't seen really any organizations say they don't want to institute measures to protect data, but 
I don't know, Mike, Mike, are you seeing it either, Mike? I'm not seeing anything in terms of a lot of lobbying, but I like to always go back to holistic security. So organizations, you know, compliance came in to being, regulatory compliance came in to being to enforce on organizations some level of security controls. What we find with our clients is the spend is typically less than the recommended spend on security uh, to implement the security controls that satisfy these regulatory obligations. In the United States, most organizations spend about 10% of their IT budget. And IT budgets are typically around 2.54% of revenue. So a $100 million company, $2.5 million for IT budget, around $380,000 for security should be allocated. And that's part of the problem is regulatory compliance. All of these frameworks came into play to say, here are the minimum security controls we expect you to have in place to protect privacy and PII and EPHI and all of the other regulated data. So if you, you know, you look at it from our viewpoint is holistic security versus, you know, compliance. We, we struggled to understand why organizations uh, are not trying to protect their assets other than there's costs associated with it and effort. And I think you bring up a really interesting point, Michael, is the fact that there has historically been a difference between compliance and security, and people are spending a significant amount of money on security, and they're also spending a bunch of money on compliance, theoretically. And and part of the challenge is to make sure that the money that you're spending on security actually also addresses the concept of security and compliance as well. So if you can tie the two together and ensure that the money you spend on compliance and security are, are achieving the same objective, I think that from a business perspective, that's a huge advantage uh, in, in, a, in being able to accomplish your mission of doing both. Yeah, I would agree with that. So spending on security, meaning point products, you buy a firewall, you, you buy a tool, doesn't necessarily address security standards or best practices. Regulatory frameworks are built to establish a standard to guide organizations to all of the controls that need to be put in place to protect them. So having, even if you do not fall under regulatory compliance, there are control frameworks out there to help you establish those, those standards. So it's not about how you spend money, it's about how you invest it to get the greatest return on protection. You know, to echo on that, Mike, you know, one of the things from the, the legal perspective we've really been hammering on is if you get a set of really sound controls and procedures in place to implement those controls and you can justify that the controls satisfy the requirements of one or more regulations. Doing the controls, doing those processes, doing those procedures, and making sure that they're being done takes care of your compliance. So the compliance now, you know, becomes the tail and not the dog in the whole process. And that's, I think, rightly where it should be. Compliance should happen by a good security program. It should not ideally be an independent effort in and of itself, right? If, if the program is is well run, is mature, is looking back at itself, is doing assessments, if, if the program is, is maintained, then the compliance should be derivative of that because you're doing the things you need to do to comply with the regulations. So, you know, read in the best light possible laws like SHIELD and others are really designed to get companies to start thinking about security from a control framework and a process and not just 
an ad hoc thing you kind of do when something seems to break. And, and operationally, Alan, you just you you hit on something that I think has a lot of relevance for organizations as they consider what they do spend on compliance and security. Is that you know you typically they're having multiple programs across potentially multiple obligations. So they may have a, a CCPA policy, they may have a Shield policy or a GDPR policy or HIPAA policy. Each one is independently managed and owned per those specific mandates. But what you just touched on allows for a, a cross-pollination of, of the programs to be consolidated into one program that is being satisfied by a similar set of controls, to your point. I think that's a huge advantage, not only from a cost perspective, but an efficiency and an operations perspective at the same time. And that makes perfect sense, Michael. It's satisfy multiple controls, do it once and satisfy multiple control frameworks, unify that, the control frameworks and obligations that uh, that you have into a single effort. So I feel like we've established that enforcement of, of some of these specific regulations will not be delayed. If you were hoping that compliance enforcement was going to be delayed, you're, you're probably out of luck. You know, we've established that risks are very, very high. So at the risk of me oversimplifying a complex issue, what do you do now that time is so short and the risks are so high? You know, if you're a, if you're a strapped organization, where do you start? I guess you know you want to start first by designing a, a program that's going to make sure you have the controls that satisfy the requirements of the law. If you're doing these things, you're you're satisfying the requirements of the law, and then if you know once you've defined that. If you have the talent in-house, that's awesome, right? You know, start start implementing those controls. But you also probably want to, if you don't, and even if you do, you may they may be otherwise tasked working on on you know people working remotely and so forth. I would get IV4 or, or your trusted vendor to help get these things going because you're going to need a documented cybersecurity program and it's going to have to meet the requirements of the law. And you're going to have to start putting it in. And, you know, there's there's certainly a risk-based tolerance to this. So you're going to start looking at your risks and meaningfully justify why the plan you're implementing is is commensurate for those risks. And an organization like IV4 and Mike can really help drive that process for you and help make sense of some of the controls and, and how to actually do them. At IV4, our first step with a client is to understand what they have in place. So we perform a gap analysis and We've been very fortunate in partnering uh, with Mike and Alan and Citra at automating some of that process, leveraging the Symmetric platform. But it's still, it's sitting down with the client and we spend two days going through all of the controls for whatever regulatory obligations that they fall under and explaining what the control requirement is asking of them and how are they satisfying that particular control and what's their intent for remediation going forward. So the output of that is a gap analysis that explains, here's what you have, here's what you're missing, and here's the plan of action for how you intend to remediate all of the gaps that we've discovered during the, the analysis. So it's a roadmap, basically, for them to get to full compliance, at least identify what where those gaps exist, and then what the effort and costs associated with remediation uh, is so they can establish some kind of budget around remediation efforts as well. I, I think to complement that, the issue really is how do I operationalize all these things and how do I get 
a playbook of what needs to get done, regardless of what your obligation might be. And you know, that's step one is defining you know the, the need and then taking it from the from from the need to the operationalizing of that need in terms of processes, protocols, and everything else uh, that needs to be put in place and understanding where you are in its maturity or its implementation. That's the key part about that. And then documenting it to be able to identify where you are today. So you can go back to the executive team or board members or whomever else needs to know where you are in your maturity level to help with allocation of resources to satisfy the exposure and the risk that you still are, that you're identifying through that process. And that's really at the end of the day, you know, the, the end game is to understand where you are today and how you evolve your program moving forward and make sure that you're documenting that process on day one, all the way through day X. And that, that's critical to any compliance and any audit that will take place on, on behalf of some compliance obligation you have to adhere to. Absolutely. I was going to add, though, you know, just for you know, anyone having a heart attack listening to what, what's ahead for them, <laughs> you don't have to hit it out of the park on day one. I mean, cybersecurity is a process. Organizations like the NSA get hacked. No system is going to ultimately be invulnerable. And it's really about continual improvement. So having a, having a finding along with a plan of action to fix it is not a bad thing in the sense that, you know, the company's in trouble. It's ironically a good thing because the company is, can now show a regulator or, you know, any, anyone that they're working with that we actually have a program that's about improvement. And so just doing the, the gap assessment, just having a plan of action on fixing it, just having, you know, a risk understanding of what it is, puts you leaps and bounds ahead of, of many other organizations. And then fixing them is something that you can do, but it's some risk you might actually not be able to fix, right? A, you know, a law might require something of a, of a system and the system is unable to do that. Like maybe some system doesn't have two factor or doesn't have some element required by the law. That's okay, but you should then work to figure out how can I get close to that, if not perfect, close to it. And, you know, it's okay not to have everything perfect. It's just important that you're documenting it and working towards improvement. Yeah, I agree. Um, a gap analysis is a starting point. It's the educational process that organizations need to go through to understand where they are and where they'd like to be. So that plan of action, that roadmap is, it's, it's the long pole in the tent. Once you establish that, you have to develop your system security plan or your policies and procedures. And coming out, you have to implement uh, those controls. That's the technical components, administrative, physical components that you need to put in place uh, to satisfy regulatory obligations or just good security hygiene. But it's an ongoing management of that program as uh, the landscape changes, new threats are going to emerge. We're always going to be addressing those new threats and regulatory compliance is not static either. It's always being updated. So someone has to hold the reins and make certain that they're managing this program for the long-term, not the short-term fix. I wanna take a minute and hone in on a specific federal privacy regulation because it's very timely. So the U.S. Department of Defense's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, that's a mouthful, CMMC, what do companies, if they're supplying the defense sector, need to be aware of in their efforts to show compliance? Alan, could you maybe walk us through that? Sure. So 
currently the regulation that basically talks about protecting unclassified uh, confidential information or, or, you know, is what they call it CUI is the technical term is, is DFARS. And it's a set of clauses and requirements that the federal government requires of someone contracting for unclassified confidential information. That is probably being phased out with the CMMC maturity model and version 1.0 was released a couple of months ago and it went through a number of iterations. And that new model has basically five levels. And when, when federal contracts go out to bid, they indicate what level a provider needs to be in order to bid on that contract. So by benchmarking it, uh, CMMC certification level three is roughly very, very similar to the old DFAR standard. You'd have to have all those controls. And a CMMC level one would be a very uh, much less than, than the DFARS requirement. And so the regulation basically applies to all providers from the, the guy that provides paper clips to large uh, defense industrial-based organizations that you know are involved in the design and implementation of missile systems or battleships or whatever. And so the folks supplying a paper clip may not need the same level of security and may not have the same risk of, of confidential information a CMMC level five organization might have. And, and, and in recognition of that, they've, they've developed these different levels commensurate with the risk that the government sees for the data it would be giving these providers. Under the old rule DFAR, an organization could self-certify to being compliant with the law. So they, you basically say, I'm doing good, I'm good. I'm, you know, give me the contract, I'm a good guy. And, and that would be adequate under the CMMC, though, now you have to have external certification by a person authorized to give that type of certification. And they'll come in and do an audit and make sure that the, the controls are in place. So, you know, I think there are a lot of companies involved in the defense industrial base, and I don't think there are that many people doing the assessment. So you definitely want to start getting the controls in place and start thinking about how you're going to get certified so that you're ready to bid on contracts when they come. And to elaborate a little further on that, and obviously that, that last piece is, is absolutely critical to this whole thing because it does require someone independent of your own organization to verify that you're doing these things. And as Alan referenced heart attack earlier in our conversation, you know, this is being phased in over the course of time, but Come the summer, contracts will begin to establish what what level of certification is required for an organization to bid on it. But there is theoretically some time for organizations to get this thing going, but they will start to see this process uh, start rolling out uh, over the course of um, uh, the, the months ahead and then roll into the next couple of years before it's 100% mandated across the board. And we're already starting to work with manufacturers in the area. I think um, the pause for COVID has generated a lot of interest in getting our, their houses in order. So we're working with two manufacturers that we kicked off in the past two weeks to help them uh, attain their CMMC level three. Audit capabilities, while the audits don't begin theoretically till this fall, we have an axiom, you, you never wanna undergo an audit until you're assured that you can pass an audit. Tried to help them uh, to get their level three certification and walking them through the process. We actually, one of them, we did a gap analysis for them last year around DFARS or up 
updating them with the new CMMC level three controls and starting to write their system security plans. So uh, we're seeing a lot of activity uh, in the marketplace uh, during COVID with organizations trying to uh, figure out how they get their system security plans written and prepare for these type of audits. We are too at higher speed. A lot of companies realize that they've got a lot of risk right now and they've changed the way they're working, right? Everything in their network, everything has changed. And so, you know, a lot of companies are actually owning that and recognizing it and taking steps to improve their, their security profile. So, and, and maybe, you know, as we said at the beginning of this thing, maybe it's because to some extent they foresee a more remote workforce going forward or, you know, because there, there are some benefits to working from home. There are some, you know, you need less rent, you need to less, rent less space. There, there are benefits to it that I think a lot of companies are talking about how to, how to carry forward even after all the lockdowns end. And what's what's interesting from, from from my perspective is, you know, when I think about this or I first heard about this mandate, I was thinking it was going to be, you know, geared towards the small, you know, to medium-sized enterprises that play in the defense industrial base. But, you know, anecdotally, we were contacted by a very large government entity just last week who was looking for some platform support to help navigate or understand what needs to be put into place and be able to document those things with regards to CMMC. And they were, you know, this is not a small organization, it's a very large, well-known entity and, you know, kind of blew me away a little bit thinking that an organization of that magnitude is still looking for guidance and support and how to get to where they need to be from a compliance perspective was very, very interesting. I think some of these enterprise organizations find it more obviously more challenging working with a company that uh, has 17 locations around the world. So you can imagine the effort that's involved to assess uh, readiness across an organization of that magnitude. It's much a heavier lift for those type of organizations. Yeah, and having it go to an external certification really puts a light on it. It changes everything when you could check a box and say, yeah, we're DFARS. It's not the same when someone else is going to come in and really take the temperature and see how it is. So for, for a lot of companies, big and small, it's forcing everyone to sort of re-examine, are we really doing everything we intended to do? I know that question about CMMC was, was very specific, but that's a great conversation and a very timely topic. So a more general question to close us out with, you know, especially as we, as we all record this podcast from our, our home offices, what impact does a remote workforce have on a company's information security environment? You know, what specific issues does it raise in terms of regulation compliance, for example? You know, we, we've touched on this, but just to, again, sort of wrap it up in a, in a tiny bow, talk a little bit about remote workforce with, with everything that's going on right now. We have been aiding dozens of organizations with getting remote workforce capabilities in place. One of the advantages that I think organizations have found is they're migrating a lot of those workloads to the cloud. And within the cloud, security capabilities to protect information are much more robust than many organizations have on-premise. For instance, organizations have been using Microsoft Azure Windows Virtual Desktop. And when we implement Windows Virtual Desktop and Azure to give remote workforces access to, to resources both in the cloud and on-prem, we always implement multi-factor authentication, 
conditional access, which means we can set rules for, for instance, for geolocation. This user can only authenticate in from New York State. We don't expect them to be traveling at this time. So any uh, other authentications from unknown geographic locations are blocked. So there are many security controls we're able to put in place to help protect regulated data and information and containerize it in the cloud as opposed to what we find on-premise with most organizations is they really don't have a great handle on where regulated data exists on, on all of their platforms. So this is a way to get it into onto a platform and into containers that we can isolate and protect the data more readily. So it's an opportunity. Yeah, and, and for smaller companies, I think that the remote piece is going to be more of a problem. You know, the risk they have with their remote workers is, you know, they're going to load data that they're working with on their laptops, which may or may not be encrypted. They're going to be doing a number of things. So if you're, if you're sort of taking an ad hoc approach, it's going to be problematic. But if, if you're doing the sorts of things that Mike just discussed, then you're going to see this as an advantage. And you may actually find a reduction in cost by moving some of your data systems to the cloud because they, you don't have to have the same resources internally managing it. You could theoretically improve some of the capabilities and access that information by your workforce and reduce total expenditures by allowing people to job share or work from home or have home. You know, so, you know, to, to echo Mike's point, there's opportunity in here if you do it right. And I think that the, the the last bit to this really is this making organizations really reconsider, particularly around contingency planning, what do they have in place to deal with situations of catastrophic weather incidents or pandemics or other types of things that maybe heretofore they've never really considered because it wasn't applicable. I didn't think, oh, it's not going to happen to me. So in thinking about you know, the, the rise in ransomware, you know, if you have a sound plan and program in place, you may be, a, may be better positioned to navigate a ransomware situation or a pandemic or something else because you have a sound and defined plan, you'll know how to respond and react according to what you've defined as a part of um, uh, your risk profile for your business and, and how you deal with that. I think that's that will be a, from, from my perspective, a potential very positive outcome from this COVID-19 pandemic because it gets people think differently about their business and how to maintain it over the course of time. Totally agree with that perception. Uh, Mike, we've been talking to clients about 30, 60, 90 day plans. In the first 30 days, every organization was scrambling to uh, keep their workforce productive, their businesses solvent. We ask that in the next 60 days, they look at you know what has worked and what hasn't worked and start to think about long-term strategies for how they can, in the final 90 days, 120 days, reimagine, re-architect their organization to develop higher res resiliency, business continuity plans, disaster recovery plans, resiliency, redundancy, all of the capabilities that they would need to address potentially a second wave of COVID, hopefully, you know, prepare for the worst, hope for the best kind of mentality, as well as things that would just generally help them in the long term in terms of protecting their organizations from any future uh, events that occur. I guess the last piece that I'd add to it is, you know, I don't know what percentage an organization should spend on cybersecurity and protecting data. I mean, I, Obviously, there's a limit to what a company can spend, but the ransomware is really a problem. And just during the COVID time, 
we've had many, many clients hit by ransomware, and some were able to recover it through a backup, and some couldn't. And the the ransoms, you know, used to be just a couple of thousand dollars. They were not dramatic numbers. They were something that, you know, well, why wouldn't you pay the ransom so you could get your data back? The amounts are going very high. It's getting up to serious, like a million dollars, many hundreds of thousands of dollars. And and maybe they're doing it because they they think more companies have have insurance that'll cover that loss, you know. And maybe the maybe the policy will, but many companies still don't have it. So it's I think you have to really consider how resilient is my environment and look at it with the very real risk of these increased rates of ransomware and phishing that the odds of getting tagged are going up. And so are are you hedging enough to protect it? You really need to to reevaluate that risk. And when you do pay the ransom, there's no guarantee that you'll receive the keys. In fact, the uh, organization I spoke about earlier, they actually encrypted the environment with three encryption keys. So while we were able to negotiate down uh, the number of Bitcoins, they started at 30 Bitcoins. We were able to to negotiate that down to 20 Bitcoins. Um, They only gave us two of the three keys. So a certain portion of the files we could never decrypt because we gave them two thirds of the ransom. They gave us two thirds of the keys. So um, there's never any any guarantee. Uh, They're very smart. And we have seen an acceleration, uh, just an increase in the, in the cost, uh, what the ask is these days, especially right now, if, you, if you're in healthcare, pharmaceuticals, any of the uh, types of organizations that are helping to fight the pandemic, they know that you can't afford downtime. While this organization did have cybersecurity insurance, it also meant there was a lag as the insurance company evaluated the breach. It took a little longer for us to recover from the breach because of that lag. So downtime becomes a problem. So just the best thing you can do is prepare. Be prepared for the worst and just make sure that you have your, your as I said earlier, your house in order. Thank you, guys. We, we covered a lot of ground here. Really, really insightful. Anything that we didn't touch on that you want to make sure the audience takes away from the conversation? And I think from, from, from my perspective, you know, most businesses have resigned themselves to it's not an issue of if you will be breached, but when or when an incident will happen. So to Michael's point he just made, you got to prepare and you have to have your house in order so that you can respond accordingly. And who needs to be informed? How do we recover? For, uh, are our backups segmented off so they can't be compromised in a ransomware situation? These are all very critical business thoughts that need to be put into place and executed on effectively so that you don't have a significant downtime or significant cost to your business should something bad happen to it. And that's, for me, that's, that's the biggest takeaway from my perspective. I want to thank you all for joining us today. For more information, including how to get in touch with our guests, visit www.hearaspeech.com slash cybersecurity, www.iv4.com, that's the number four, and www.citra.io, C-A-E-T-R-A. Thanks for listening to the Harris Beach podcast. Be sure to visit harrisbeach.com to join the conversation and access show notes. Please rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast.